The Beerer Podcast. Research matters. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Beerer Podcast. We're really excited to be joined by Professor Heidi Merzer. My name is John Parkin and I'm a Senior Lecturer Practitioner in Education at Anglia Ruskin University in Peterborough, where I'm also doing my uh, EdD. Over to my colleague Saima to introduce herself. Hello, everyone. I'm Saima Saleji. I'm a senior lecturer in the University of uh, Glasgow, and I'm also a BIRA's uh, SIG convener for race, ethnicity, and education. Um, over to Mabel. I'm Mabel Encinas. I'm a senior lecturer at London Metropolitan University, and uh, I am also convener for the sociocultural and cultural historical activities theory special interest group in BIRA. And uh, it is with great pleasure that I introduce today uh, Heidi Safia uh, uh, Mirza. She is a passionate, well-known Black feminist academic, and she was one of the first Black women professors in the UK. She has been professor uh, emeritus in uh, equality studies at the at UCL Institute of Education. She's professor uh, of race, uh, faith, and culture at Goldsmiths in the, the University of London. And she has been visiting professor in social policy at the London School of Economics. Heidi lived in Trinidad from the age of four to sixteen and uh, experience the contrast between the educational system in that country and in the UK. She has done pioneer research on race, gender, and identity in education, multiculturalism, Islamophobia, and gendered violence. She's author and editor of several books, including Young, Female, and Black, um, Tackling the Roots of Racism, Lessons to, for Success, and Black and Postcolonial Feminists in New Times. Uh, all these books are really uh, passionate, and I have found lots of imp- inspirations in all of them. Without further ado, I would like to to say hello to Heidi and, uh, and to start this uh, conversation. Hello. Um, thank you, Mabel. Um, thank you, John, and thank you, Sarma, for lovely introductions. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk to you about intersectionality. And thank you for asking me. Thank you to Vera. Well, thanks for joining us. I'll start off with the first question, if that's all right. I'm going to be joined by my daughter, Beatrice, who's going to be helping me with this question. So when I was preparing for the interview today, my six-year-old daughter asked me what I was doing. She asked what section I said I was looking at intersectionality. And she asked me what it meant, and I really struggled to explain what it was. So I'm hoping Heidi can do a better job than I can. And Beatrice, do you want to ask your question? What is intersectionality? Uh, <laughs> I love that. I, don't I know, know. it sounded like intersectionality, <laughs> not intersectionality. But yes, <laughs> it is to do with race, class and sex, actually. So um, so thank you, Beatrice, for that, that uh, really very difficult question. And I was saying to your daddy that actually I was thinking about it last night before I went to bed and I had a dream about it. And uh, 
your dad also told me, why don't I write children's books instead of academic books? <laughs> so I came up with a story uh, in my dream last night. And intersectionality is about the forces that interweave to make different people's lives differently. So this is the story that I'm going to tell you. Once upon a time, there was a little girl called Beatrice. And Beatrice lived in a nice house with her mummy and daddy. And she had snow white skin. She went on holidays. She had a passport. And she would go and have a great time in another country and then come back and go to school. And at school, there was a little boy. And he was lived across the river from her in another part of the town. And he didn't have a mummy and daddy. And he didn't live in a nice house. And his skin was as black as can be. And he couldn't go on holiday. And he lived in a special home uh, where he didn't really know anybody. And he was angry. And you were happy. And you became friends in the playground. And you grew up together and you helped him in his journey. So that's the story of intersectionality, that you are, you are from different backgrounds and you live different lives. And it's a very difficult life for some people and a very easy life for others. So it's about privilege and deprivation and how it interweaves to make our lives different. And that's the end of the story. It has a good ending because you become very good friends and help each other. Did you like that story? <laughs> you, I'm going to say thank you for that story. <laughs> oh, that was, that was really good. That was really thought-provoking. I found that quite emotional, actually, hearing that story. Yes. So, oh, <laughs> well, I thought, really? that's why I told you it kept me awake at night. And uh, Yes. <laughs> Well, thank you for that. Oh, you didn't mention, John, that uh, Beatrice is just six. <laughs> and uh, I do spend a lot of time talking to to adults, obviously, students and uh, other professors and whatever. So it is indeed a challenge to break down a complex idea like intersectionality. And one of the things we do in academia is very pompous about our ideas, very theoretical. <laughs> and yet it's actually about the simple things in life, which is about inequality and social justice. And how do we actually attain that by looking at the embodiment of difference? And I do a lot of work around embodied intersectionality, which is precisely about how the body mediates the socially constructed world in which we live. Yeah. No, that's really interesting, isn't it? And thinking about that application of the concept of intersectionality is so important. Right. On to our next question. What does your work tell us about how intersectionality influences education in schools, Heidi? Gosh, you know, um, intersectionality in schools. Well, I've done, I've done, um, from my very, very beginnings of my work, when I started doing my PhD in the 1980s, very early 1980s, you know, intersectionality wasn't, wasn't even a term. And I read Angela Davis's um, book on race, class 
and 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 sex in and looking at uh, African American um, women who had been enslaved, the his, history of that, and it was just a complete eye opener for me. Um, it was the first book that I was actually reading that that brought all those elements together to look at the different experiences that African American women had from men, African American men who had been enslaved, and it just spoke to me about my experiences and Mabel you know, talked about my background in Trinidad. And um, I, I come from, um, I, I'm called Heidi because my mother is Austrian and my father is Indo-Caribbean. And I grew up in a country where it's about 50% people of African descent and 50% people of Indian descent. And everyone's very mixed. Mabel, it's very much like South America. <laughs> and uh, I just grew up seeing that there were huge differences. And, and also there's a white population. It's a bit like South Africa. There's an, a white elite and, of course, Chinese traders. I mean, it's very, very mixed country. And I could see that people had different pathways into privilege and different pathways into disadvantage. And I could see that there was a whole area of gender relations that me as a little girl was expected. There were expectations of me not really to be educated, not really to, to have a career. And so I began to bring that together in, in my thinking around doing my PhD, which was about Caribbean girls in schools in Britain. And it just had to be about intersectionality because I positioned myself in the work. In fact, I went back to my old school to do the research um, I had a young baby at the time and I couldn't get a job. So it was um, really interesting to to start my work from where I stood, from what I knew. Um, it was almost like um, I had got, you know, I had I had my degree from university, but I couldn't couldn't get a, get any work in the 1970s. So it was it was my starting point what I knew. And I knew that there was discrimination. I was told at school in England when I came, um, when I was 16, that I will never amount to anything. I was mocked because of my strong Caribbean accent and I learned to speak the Queen's English. I learned how to fit in. And so my work in schools is always about exposing the, the injustices and the racism in school and how it operates at the local level. And I did that with Young Female and Black and I've gone on to do it with Muslim girls, young Muslim girls in school as well, looking at their specific experiences uh, in, in, in the school. Well, I, I, I have two questions. As we are talking about schools, if we think about in intersectionality and all the research you have done, how should we approach uh, intersectionality in school, in the school curriculum? Well, just reflecting on my research, there's how we approach it in the curriculum, but also how do we as teachers in schools, and I say we because I'm not a teacher in school, I'm a teacher in the university, but how do, how do we locate ourselves to understand the pupils that we teach, understand the complexities of their lives? So, you know, when I did um, Young Female and Black, there were several things that, um, that I found in that research. One was the absolute importance of teacher expectations, how the teachers viewed the young women as being less able, including me, as we were already configured as failures. 
And one of the things that really struck me, and in later books, I've, I've written a book um, called um, Respecting Difference on Teacher Education. And, uh, you know, in Britain, even though we're, we're a growing multicultural country, and I'm using a term like multicultural to, you know, to show how different we are. I mean, no words go out of vogue and in vogue, but we are a multicultural, multiracial society. But what, what is really surprising about our teaching workforce is they're about 85% white. And so we don't really have teachers of color in our schools, maybe more concentrated in the inner city, but not, you know, in the vast majority of Britain. So teacher expectations and exposure to different cultures and different religions and different social classes is really problematic, I think, in how how we go about teaching intersectionality if you haven't reflected on your own intersectional position. So I would say that, and, and also my experience over the 40 years I've been teaching and in higher education is that when it comes to um, doing diversity in schools uh, for teacher and universities for teachers, it's just like a couple of hours in their entire training so when it comes to thinking about racial and gender and sexual and class differences, the training is nil, literally. And it's a guest speaker like me. So we were wheeled in once once a week or something, not once a week, sorry, once a term. And uh, that's an add-on. And it's still like that. And we've been complaining, Vinnie Lander, um, she's professor of um, race and education in Leeds Beckett, for example, you know, we've been banging on about this for years, you know, the need for sort of anti-racist perspectives in teacher training. And instead, we get British values, um, which has sort of been imposed on the curriculum. Used to be citizenship education, that's kind of shifted out towards British values. So there is this kind of, um, nobody owns the subject, nobody feels the subject. But um, how we go about changing that, it needs a thought revolution, really, and I call it decolonizing. We need to decolonize the way that we uh, go about teacher education. And decolonizing isn't a concept that should be scary <laughs> or difficult to understand. It doesn't mean throwing out texts of the great and the good white men, because there's a lot to learn. I I've learned all my sociology through Weber, Marx, Durkheim, you know, and uh, I wouldn't be where I am without the without those thinkers. But then I take it to the next level. So decolonizing for me is actually people thinking, the teachers, the academics, the researchers, starting with who they are, their own indigenous knowledge, their own respect for their ancestors, their rootedness in the subjects that they teach, asking themselves the question, why do I teach or why do I love a subject? What is it about where I come from, what I know? How can I employ my positionality as a woman of color, as a Muslim man, as a, you know, a white man? How can I use that understanding of either privilege or disadvantage, as I was saying to Beatrice earlier, to then locate myself and understand the pupils that I'm teaching? It, decolonizing is not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's actually respecting who you are and where you stand. 
and bringing that into the classroom to respect and understand your students. Thank you, Heidi. I think you really answered my second question because it, it was about uh, supporting teachers to understand intersectionality. And I like very much this reflection you do that it's not a, a one-off thing that will change things. We need to constantly engage in reflexivity and 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 think about our own position, not not only what happens there out in the world. But I don't know, maybe you have something else to add to what can we do with, to support teachers to understand intersectionality? Well, you know, I, I've been in this business a long time and I, I can kind of gauge the atmosphere out there in schools by the kind of requests I get from teachers teaching sociology in particular. And uh, at the moment, I've got a flood of particularly young women teachers asking me, can I come to their schools to talk about black feminism and intersectionality? And these are schools that are in South End or in uh, Lincolnshire and, and, and saying that they have mainly white students and they are white teachers themselves. And can I talk about intersectionality to them? And so I can actually get a sense that there is this real desire to know what intersectionality is and a real desire to, to impart it to their, to their young ones, <laughs> to the next generation, because they're asking. They're very aware, they're gender aware in particular, very, you know, we use this word woke, but woke actually has been co-opted as a bad word, but actually it comes from African-American um, roots where they would talk about being woke to the problems of the world, being awake to the problems of the world. And so, you know, the young people with Black Lives Matter, with the lockdown in COVID, um, with the mental health pressures, with the multiculturalness and the so of social media, their exposure to global relations and, and, and friends in, in other places, the world has become smaller and they want to know about it. And so intersectionality provides that framework. So I would say like a handbook. So I don't have to keep going out to Lincolnshire or Southend or Bradford or something. You know, I, I would just, yeah, I should do that. I should maybe spend some time doing a trade book because as academics, we do academic books and we write journal articles that take years to come out. And then it's all big language so that we can <laughs> obfuscate the ideas and confuse everyone with our brightness and how clever we are. But actually, the idea of intersectionality is very simple. As I was explaining to Beatrice, John, earlier, it's really, if you think of the Arc de Triomphe, do you know the Arc de Triomphe in Paris? It's, um, it's like Marble Arch in London. And there are these roads coming, about six or seven roads coming to the centre of Paris at the Arc de Triomphe. And so when we think about intersectionality, we should think about the avenues of disadvantage and disempowerment that leads to that central place, which is you, the student, the teacher, the pupil, how all those avenues of disadvantage, so the avenues could be race and discrimination around race. It could be around gender and, um, and, and issues around sexuality and defining difference around sexuality and gender. It could be 
and and the fact that you may be disempowered through through your gender or your sexuality. It could be religion, religious discrimination, like as in Islamophobia. It could be migration and the period in which you've come and as a refugee or as an asylum seeker and the disempowerment of lack of citizenship and, and nationality and how that affects your human rights and your ability to function in a society. It could be um, myriads of things. There's structural things. Those are the big things. Gender, race, and class is the probably the biggest one of all. Access to wealth. The house, John, that I told Patrice, you lived, I can see you live in a nice house. <laughs> well, you're in a nice room, should I say? And, um, you know, wealth and privilege is really a massive underlying the beat of inequality, I would say. And so that race, class, gender, uh, and nationality are some of the big ones. There are other ones like life course intersectionalities, such as age, disability. Disability you could be born with, or you it, it could come and go at various points in your life. So, you know, we think about disability as a kind of a situational um, life course, but also structural because there aren't the kind of structures in our society to actually see disability as a norm, as as part maybe part of everybody's life. There is things like um, I said, age. As you become older, when you're younger, in your teenage years, you're going to have different intersecting conflicts. So you could be an older white man, and you and and be very disadvantaged and very vulnerable. You know, it doesn't mean just because you're a white man, you're, you know, you're not vulnerable. At different points in your life, you will be, and different points you won't be. And it depends if you're rich or poor. Um, so all of those things are what we talk about with intersectionality. There are other things like um, pregnancy and mental health issues. And I know that the, the 2010 Equalities Act brings in all those elements of pregnancy, marriage, civil partnerships, and so on. So health, well-being, and everything intersect your lives in, in different ways. So uh, your ethnicity, maybe you're from South, South America, you know, you've got a strong accent. That really defines you as soon as you open your mouth and a whole load of discriminatory and, uh, you know, sorry, my <laughs> ideas come come rolling out of people's heads and they will define you, maybe not as professorial material, because I think you should be a professor by now. <laughs> I know. But there are discriminations in our institutions that absorb these intersectional position positionalities that we have. And so really the, the job of intersectionality is to see how we take on that and live those experiences and that's why I've coined this notion of embodied intersectionality, the way we embody disadvantage and live. Our subjectivity is shaped by that. Sometimes I have very low self-esteem because I walk into a room filled with white researchers from the cabinet office or something, and I know how much work I have to do to gain their respect because I don't embody the normal look of who has knowledge. And I remember when I was working at South Bank University, I had a wonderful colleague, but I was far more qualified than him. And he was a white, a white older man. And, uh, you know, he had a shock of white hair and he wore 
corduroy trousers and Birkenstocks. <laughs> and he looked like a mad professor in, in the olden, you know, in the Harry Potter days. And uh, the students, who were mainly black students, this is in the 1990s, absolutely thought he was the bee's knees because he must be well qualified. Well, he had a master's degree. I had a PhD and I was, you know, always looked very young and I'm a woman of color and I walked into the room and the students would just keep talking because they think I was another student. And uh, so I didn't embody authority and it would take me nearly a term, every single term. This was my first job and I was very young. I was, you know, still in my thirties. It would take me a term to gain their confidence and to understand that I too can embody knowledge. You know, I have that legacy still where I think sometimes I'm not good enough. Sometimes I, I have no credibility. And I, I was so nervous before coming into this interview. I'm always nervous. So the question is, is, you know, how do we embody the knowledge that we have of how we are being seen? And, uh, and how do we interact with it? So intersectionality is a multi, is a multiple, many splendid thing. <laughs> Thank you very much, Heidi. If, I think I ask all my questions, so Saima. <laughs> okay, great. great. Thank you. Thank you, Heidi. Uh, it's been uh, five or six years that I've been involved in intersectionality and you, I found you as one of the pioneers in the uh, UK system uh, who has been talking about intersectionality. And what I really enjoyed about intersectionality and we have just discussed is about subjectivity. And uh, even to my student teachers, I keep talking about this subjectivity issue that even a person of color like me and uh, who is immigrant from South Asia, who is Muslim, and um, a similar kind of um, identity, we might have different lived experiences. So this this is something that I really want you to emphasize a bit more on it uh, in terms of if you are talking to a student teacher. So if I'm talking to a student teacher, the question is, how do I talk to them about intersectionality? Yes, in terms of subjectivity. So we need to look into the subjectivity of uh, children. And I know the list of the questions include the second skin. This is something that really changed my ideology and my positionality in terms of looking at second skin. Um, your paper was mainly based on uh, religion, uh, but I can see different second skins throughout our lives. So I hope I'm not making complicated, but uh, anything that you want to share in terms of second skin and subjectivity, please. Oh, well, you know, the, that paper's second skin was that I was talking to Muslim women academics and one of the respondents in that piece of research said, you know, I wear my hijab and it's so important to me. It's my, it's like a second skin. And you know what popped into my head and what I then talked about in, in that paper was the work of Franz Fanon. And Franz Fanon was a um, a black um, academic from Martinique in the 1950s. And he wrote, um, uh, well, he was a black academic. He was a psychiatrist, actually, and uh, he was a doctor. And, um, and Martinique is a French colony. And he went to Paris and became a doctor. And he talks about the epidermalization of the skin and the, the epidermis is, is the surface of the skin. And what he's saying is that he he is a black doctor and he had this experience 
of being in Paris, walking along the road. I think it was an underground or something, and and a, a, a white French woman with her young child, probably the same age as Beatrice, you know, where you've got no inhibition, says, mother, mother, look, there's, and he used the N-word, um, which we won't use here, but, you know, called him out in that way. And he was dressed in, 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 in a suit, you know, with his briefcase, and he was called the N-word. And he said, at that moment, I was reduced to tom-toms, the beat of the jungle, the Tarzan in through the trees. All my years of studying and knowledge, uh, my dignity as a doctor faded into nothingness. I'm nothing but my skin. You know, I'm no more than that history of what people consider black people to be less intelligent, uh, and, and, and he was totally objectified at that moment. And he said it all came rushing down. Uh, I suppose it influenced his amazing um, and, and work. So this idea that the skin, and in the case of Muslim women, the hijab, or things that are visible, that make us visibly different. And I suppose, Mabel, in yours, in, in, it's your accent. You know, these things make us stand out and not be accepted or define us. So it isn't our our achievements, it isn't our intelligence, it isn't all the things that make us complex. We are just reduced to no more than a stereotype very often. And I will say, you know, um, when you walk into a doctor's office, for example, it is your race and your gender. Class is less visible very often but maybe there may be cultural expressions of that. Maybe it's the way you speak or something that will define you before you enter the room. <laughs> so that knowledge seems to exist outside of yourself. And my question is always, how can we tackle that? Because if discrimination is external, then how can we break down that racism, that discrimination, that, you know, thinking somebody, um, you know, from a working class traveler background is less than anyone else. We're all the same under the skin. And that's why the second skin for me is so important as a kind of concept. And uh, Franz Fanon opened that door of, uh, of the relationship between the hijab and color. So religion and skin color is really important. And I think in that whole complexity is history. And we haven't, this is why decolonizing, I'll go back to that point again, decolonizing is important because we don't know our histories well enough because it's been told the stories of our histories of the British colonial legacy, the brutality of that legacy, you know, has been reframed in so many ways about British greatness and the royal family and pageantry. We, you know, we don't actually know of that brutality that actually negated black identity in the col uh, and Indian identity in the colonies. Because again, Franz Fanon's work tells us that the way that you become colonized, how could a small group of people like the British in their ships go to India and Africa and colonize those countries? There had to be a process of erasure. And it's the it's the erasure of the of the of the mind, you know, he talks about the, the narcissism of whiteness, you know, the sense of that importance of whiteness. When you implant yourself in these societies, 
You've got to negate the language of those people. You have to negate their cultural and religious identities. You have to erase their histories. The Benin, you know, was Benin was a massive city, one of the biggest cities in the world and would still be one of the biggest cities. It was razed to the ground and all the Benin bronzes are now scattered um, and should be returned. They're not all returned. But when, you know, so it was the erasure of the culture, the religion, the language. And if you think about, um, I grew up in Trinidad, we have no national language, it's English. And so, you know, your ability, Mabel, again, you know, how good you are at speaking English gives you power. And so there's this um, social theorist called Homi Baba, he's a literary theorist, and he has talked about the mimic men, the elites in Africa, the elites in the Caribbean, the elites in India, took on white ears and graces, the white clothes, the language. And the more closer that you got to the center of power, the more power you got. So the whole process of erasure of who we are is something we need to really decolonize and understand that process of negation and white narcissism that has actually shaped uh, modernity uh, as we know it. It's a complex process. uh, But without that, I don't think we can um, we can progress. And one of the things that really that I think is really important is we don't have enough historians and geographers and literary artists and so on to tell those other stories. Um, it's really very important that we, you know, people of color living in Britain do tell their other stories. And in the 1990s, the Society of the Association of Social Scientists did a poster of me after I wrote Young Female and Black and Black British Feminism. And it's a poster that goes to the schools and it says, they asked me for a quote and it just came out, our voices must be heard. We all have our own stories to tell. And for me, storytelling, the story, like I told Beatrice <laughs> uh, this morning, are powerful mechanisms to tell alternative worldviews. Um, you don't have to be a scholar. You can be, you know, my goddaughter is Candice Carty-Williams, who's just written a book called Queenie and uh, and is producing films now. She's telling the story of young Jamaican women and living in dysfunctional families because in the Caribbean, the intention of the slave owners, the British, the Dutch, the French, Spanish slave owners, was to destroy the black family so that they couldn't have any power to protest of their conditions. Of course, they did protest and and so on, but nevertheless, it was to destroy normal human relations, to take children from mothers, to emasculate men. I mean, this was this was what happened, uh, the brutality, where you were just no more property. And so that legacy stays from the destruction of your language, you know, the language, the African languages that they, they spoke coming from West Africa. They weren't allowed to speak their languages, so they couldn't communicate. So all of those processes, we now live with the aftermath of that. So intersectionality allows us to not only just look at race, class, sex, and gender, but understand the roots of how racism has evolved and why we have the social phenomena like young black boys not doing well in school and girls, single parent families, 
you know, I'm always saying, you know, I, I've been a single parent family and it's been a wonderful experience in so many ways. But at the same time, our society is set up for dual, you know, dual parenting households. So how do you navigate that and work and look after your children? So all of those things affect um, migrant communities in particular in Britain. Um, you know, how do we survive that histories that we carry with us as refugees, as asylum seekers, coming with nothing in your pocket? How do we build wealth? Because wealth is the demarcation of privilege in this society. Thank you very much, Heidi. Uh, our last question is uh, regarding um, researchers. So uh, you have done a decades-long work, empirical work, in schools, in higher education, and collecting data in terms of intersectionality. And I'm sure you have done a lot of um, counselling and a lot of mentoring job in terms of this uh, intersectionality, empirical work as well. So what researchers you think should consider when using intersectionality as a methodological framework? Oh, wow. <laughs> I was recently asked to work on a free, well, I didn't know it was going to be a three-year project, with the Institute of Fiscal Study, Studies, the IFS, which is an economic think tank here in Britain. They're always on the news every day talking about recession or whatever. And I'm going like, I'm not an economist. What the hell? You know, uh, I can barely read statistics. <laughs> I can barely add up my change when I get it. Not that we use coins much anymore, but thank goodness, because I can never add anything up quickly, mainly because my teacher when I was little in Trinidad used to beat us if we got any sums wrong. So I, I just freeze. And so they asked me to write um, a paper on race and ethnic inequalities in Britain. And I had a wonderful statistician researcher, young researcher, a young white man, actually. And I said to him, you know, we're going to do an intersectional um, study of race uh, and ethnic inequalities in Britain, economic and social inequalities. And he was totally, he was, he's um, probably 24, 25 um, a graduate from Warwick, the first class, you know, graduate in economics. And he wasn't phased at all. <laughs> and we set about doing an intersectional study of race and ethnic inequalities in Britain. And the, the head honchos at IFS said, Heidi, you've got to tell us what race and ethnicity mean, because we don't want to get it wrong. We can't use BAME and, you know, it's work words and what you can use and can't use. And as white men, we're really, really terrified of this territory. So I said about writing, you know, the kind of history of eugenics and, and, and intelligence and how that's shaped our understanding of race and how it's got the colonial roots and the kind of languages that we use now, how it's that, you know, that it can be problematic because it doesn't respect the diversity of people. So my point here is when you're going to do a piece of intersectional work, it's hard work because you're not just going to look at class inequalities in education. We had to look at race, gender and class inequalities. You know, we just couldn't look at social social class without looking at Bangladeshi children, black African children. But within that, the girls and the boys, how different it would be between them. And so what was meant to be a 
10,000 word study turned out to be a 70,000 word book. (laughs) Because if you're going to do intersectional research, it's peeling back the layers like an onion of all the different things that create that inequality. So if you're going to say like a positive story is that Bangladeshi girls have been doing very well at school in the last 10 years, we've seen the results of the the earlier work, which I was involved in to um, raise standards in schools because I worked with Tony Blair's government uh, on the school standards task force and we set up excellence in cities and that pumped a lot of money and uh, expertise into places like Tower Hamlets. And now we're, and, and these are Muslim only girls schools. And now we're seeing the results of that, of the girls doing well. So you need to also understand the geography, the history and the politics that shape policy. So why girls are doing better than boys in that scenario is because they were the focus of policy. But if we were just looking at Bangladeshi children or if we were just looking at ethnic minority children, we wouldn't know that story. So we have to drill down, take off the layers of the onion to see how policy, the geography that they lived in Tower Hamlets, so they lived in a close community, the origins of the policy, the fact that they got, uh, it was David Blunkett at the time, heard me on the radio talking about supplementary schools and the desire for education amongst um, people of colour in in coming to Britain. And he got me on on the team and then we shaped a lot of, work around social exclusion. So what I'm saying is, if you're going into a school and you've got a diverse classroom or maybe not a diverse classroom in terms of colour and race and ethnicity or religion, you need to ask very deep questions and look below the surface to explain why some might be doing better than others. Don't make kind of simple assumptions Ask the young people themselves. Ethnography is a very powerful tool in schools because each child will have a different story, a bit like the little boy who lived across the river, John, <laughs> and uh, and had a very different life than Patrice. You know, you won't know that unless you ask them about their stories. That explains why some do better than others, why some are struggling, why some might have mental health issues. When I looked at the Bangladeshi girls in uh, my piece of research on migrant girls in schools, it wasn't just Bangladeshi, it was, it was Muslim girls, Afghani girls, Burundi, Uganda, you know, Iran, I mean, from all over the world, Malaysia, um, in one school in, 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 in London, well, in several schools in London, but in this particular piece of work I did in a kind of drill-down ethnography. And each culture of Muslim girls, whether they're from Iran or Afghanistan, had a different story about how their culture interrelated with the school, how they interrelated with the with the boys. They would be bullying, particularly bad amongst the Afghani boys to the girls, you know, almost blackmailing them around um, telling their parents that they had kissed a boy or something like that, the terror that that, how that led to mental health issues. I mean, so you have to unravel all the complexities behind the stories. And these might be very middle-class Afghani families because they came as refugees, as opposed to the young woman from Burundi who was um, also a refugee but was very, very poor. And she wore a hijab, another hijab, a whole niqab, and she was very, very dark-skinned and she was being bullied by other black boys. 
And uh, that was the bane of her life, not teacher racism. It was the absolute brutality of that bullying where they would they would mock her for being blick, which meant darker than dark. So it was black on black racism in the schools. And she would wear the niqab, which was not clean and because it had stains down the front because it was black and she wore trainers. And she told me in the interview, because the teachers told me, don't even bother to speak to her because she's just so useless and she never comes into school. And then I realized when I interviewed her that she was bringing up her three siblings because her mother was depressed because the father had died. This is a bit like the little boy who lives across the river, John. And she she was like the sole carer of her mother and these three children. And she was 16 years old. You know, she couldn't, she didn't even have time to clean her clothes and she couldn't buy any nice clothes like the other girls. So she chose to wear the full niqab as a kind of armor plating so that she could get through the day at school. And she was often didn't come in because she was so, had so much to do at home. But the school did not know this because she held it inside. She was ashamed. And so it was, you know, that's the kind of stories that we need to tell. And intersectionality allowed me to look at, you know, interracial bullying. Um, It allowed me to look at, um, you know, teacher, these low teacher expectations. They were about to actually expel her for not turning up. Uh, enough at school. So I gave a, a talk to um, at Cambridge University um, uh, a few years ago for the Humanitas lectures. It's a series of lectures. And in this particular series, there was um, Melanie Vahir, who was the Obama's ambassador uh, at large, you know, going roaming around the world and, you know, particularly the, the, the lower and middle income countries we now call it used to be developing countries, Africa and India and so on. And she gave the, the, the keynote lecture and I was the respondent. And she was talking, she opened her lecture by saying how important it is uh, for us to understand how important cow is to families in Africa. And we should, we should raise money to give families cows or goats so that they can liberate their girls because of the Millennium Development Goals where we should, um, you know, girls should reach a, a level of literacy by, it was <laughs> about 10 years ago, they should have reached a certain level and it's fallen off the agenda, a bit like climate change. You set goals, but you never achieve them in, in international circles. And uh, she was saying, yes, we need, to, we need to do that. We need to kind of intervene in these societies and, and, and empower these girls through, through giving a cow to their family so they're not married off early and so on. And I sat there and then I had to write my speech that night of responding to her speech. And I was so enraged because I had just done this research in these schools in South London. And I was thinking, in America and in Britain, the conditions for some of our migrant girls is much worse or as bad or in a different way, <laughs> you know, uh, as bad as, as in Africa. Why is the Western world looking? Why is the gaze on their poverty, but not the poverty and discrimination in the richest work countries in the world. How shameful is that? And how easy is it to look overseas and say, let's give them period pads because of the wars in Syria or, or, or in Congo? It's easy because I've seen posters like that on the tube where they say, you know, the objectification of blackness and poverty and disempowerment it's so overwhelming here in the West. And we're not seeing 
on our doorstep how much we can do and what we need to do to change the conditions for these young people in our schools. Anyway, I'll get off my hobby horse now. <laughs> uh, but yes, peel back the layers, open your eyes and use an intersectional framework. It's not easy, but it's the only way. <laughs> Thank you, Heidi. Um, and it's such a privilege that uh, we are talking in person. We have read a lot of your books and articles over time. But such a privilege that you are talking um, in person. Um, uh, from from your last uh, comment, we, uh, such a good practical points for teachers, even the school teachers. I'm from a Scottish background, so in schools we are very much into practice inquiry. And uh, your your message on you know ethnography and go in depth will really help these teachers if they want to uh, work in the area of uh, race, racism, and anti-racism. And your point on global south and global uh, north and the discrimination between them, that why we are just not looking into uh, north as well. It's, it's amazing. And again, you know, the narratives that you're talking about, the storytelling, the narrative identity aspect that you are um, mentioning is highly important in terms of intersectionality. Thank you so much for allowing us to discuss the different nuances of intersectionality. Your expert suggestions and insights would certainly benefit school teachers, PhD students, early career researchers, and senior academics in embedding intersectionality in their day-to-day -day teaching, learning, and research venues. Thank you, Heidi, uh, for, for, for such a good information, the last question. I just wanted to ask you in terms of success. Uh, the, you have met over many decades, you have met successful uh, women of color. So would you like to extend a bit more about it, please? Oh, wow, yes. Well, um, looking at success is a key aspect of intersectionality. I mean, it is looking at the dark side of things often, um, you know, the inequalities, but we don't often talk enough about success and um, uh, looking at uh, various things I have written, like Young Female and Black, was how, you know, these young women in very difficult circumstances navigated the system that was discriminating against them to achieve success. So they did the back door into further and higher education, which means that they they didn't get the results that they wanted to at school, but they would they would uh, choose a course maybe in a childcare with a view to then going on doing a degree in sociology and social sciences. So there was there was always this using their abilities and their opportunities to the best effect. And as women of color, that's what I've seen over and over again. I mean, the, the struggle to, against the odds, to climb up the ladder to, to being a professor, to being the very best um, that we can be in terms of whatever professions we choose, whether that's politicians or, um, and, and using meritocracy and credentialism to achieve that by credentialisms, I mean, you know, getting more and more qualifications. The thing is, social mobility in the Western world, in, in, in Britain in particular, you know, even though we might have lots of credentials and do very well, we don't get equal pay. And our levels of social mobility, therefore, are limited. Um, so uh, social mobility in terms of, you know, upward upward trajectories in terms of, of pay and conditions. So, yeah, it's um, 
success. And I hear that you've also written a book. Tell me a bit about your book. Um, so it's on uh, success stories of South Asian women. And the title is Learning to Succeed in Sciences. Um, it's all about uh, success stories of women and how they, if even if they have barriers and hurdles in their lives, how they have overcome that and what the uh, what success is for them. And it was amazing to find out when I asked them, for example, what is success for you? It was more about contentment. It was more about their happiness. It was more about uh, their altruistic, you know, activities. It was more about informal learning. Um, it was uh, to help others, and rather they were talking about that they have um, they, they have gained a professor um, a role, or they are nurses now uh, from a, a low socioeconomic background. So it was amazing to see that every every person's success is measured separately, differently, and subjectively. So uh, we call it as personal intersectionality and personal way of understanding successes. Well, that's a lovely way to think about intersectionality, that it's personal and it's and it's successful and it's about contentment and happiness. That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Saima. Thank you, Heidi. You know, I like very much your story, Heidi. I think it's a, it's a lovely story and I think it's, we need to think how to communicate children these complex issues of the of of the world, and and I have been thinking about about that, and I have written a couple of books so far uh, about children, and and I am interested in writing children uh, children's book, but they are uh, the main character being a girl, and uh, and a girl that is uh, not. Not, not quite, I would say, from different backgrounds. So I wrote my first book is this book. I'm Adila from Gaza. And um, it's it's a story of a, a five-year-old uh, that lives in Gaza with all the situations that, that take place there. It's intersectional in, in terms of presenting the different complexities of, of her life in that context. And it's uh, although it's a book that, that deals with uh, loss, it's also uh, a book that has hope, uh, hope that we, we, we can find different ways of doing things uh, possibly. So it's a, it's a complex uh, topic, uh, but I think uh, children need to, to understand these, uh, these complex concepts in a, in a way that is approachable uh, for them. I, I, I took that from your story. Good. Thank you so much, Mabel. And what it strikes me is that you know, in thinking about how to communicate intersectionality to teachers, having books written by scholars like yourself, uh, you know, a children's book, as well as the scholarship that you do, is an incredible, powerful thing. And I love the way that you've used intersectionality to think about hope in a complex and uh, traumatic situation. And I think that intersectionality gives us that key to open that door. I really enjoyed that conversation, Heidi. Thank you so much for your time. And hope that if you're listening, you enjoyed this podcast too. Thank you. Thank you.